Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today's show is part of our Postscript series in which we invite authors to react to contemporary political events that engage their scholarship. Today, we'll be looking at the intersection of public policy, law, domestic violence, and violence prevention. In 2019, nearly two-thirds of domestic violence homicides in the United States were committed with a gun. On average, three women are killed by a current or former partner every day in the United States. Between 1980 and 2014, more than half of women killed by intimate partners were killed with guns. Domestic violence affects children, friends, neighbors, peace officers, the abusers themselves, and society as a whole. This fall, the United States Supreme Court will hear a Second Amendment case that may affect whether Congress or state legislatures may pass laws to mitigate domestic violence. To unpack what we know about the effect of firearms on intimate partner violence, I'm joined by two nationally recognized experts on public health and firearms. Dr. Shannon Frateroli is professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's affiliated with the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Her scholarship focuses on how to translate evidence about injury and violence prevention into policies and practices that create safe places for people to thrive. She's a leader on both research and practice efforts to implement firearms dispossession, provisions of domestic violence restraining orders, and the new extreme risk protection order laws, often called red flag laws. Policy creation and implementation are crucial components of her research. Dr. April M. Zioli is Associate Professor of Health Management at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and also the Policy Corps Director at their Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. Her research focuses on the impact of state-level firearm safety laws on interpersonal firearm violence. She studies domestic violence-related firearm restrictions, such as laws that require or allow firearm restrictions on domestic violence restraining orders. She has particular interest in outcomes, for example, reductions in violence, suicide, and intimate partner homicide, and how local implementation affects these outcomes. She's dedicated to using science to create and enforce policy that reduces firearm violence. I'm thrilled to also have a friend of the podcast to connect this research on violence prevention to the upcoming Supreme Court case. Kelly Roscom is the Director of Law and Policy at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. She studies the constitutional implications of, advocates for, and works to improve the implementation of firearms laws. She served as the legal director of the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence and has published on gun violence restraining orders, most recently public-facing work about the practical implications of the Rahimi case since it came up through the Fifth Circuit and goes to the Supreme Court. I'll link some of the research and articles of all three um, in the show notes. Welcome, all of you, to uh, New Books and Political Science, Postscript Edition. The three of you have submitted an amicus brief, um, which is called Public Health and Researchers from 111 researchers uh, across the country. Let's start with the case coming to the Supreme Court, United States versus Rahimi, to be heard this fall. Yes. 
in uh, in 2019, Zaki Rahimi got into an altercation with his girlfriend, identified only as CW in the government's petition. Um, he dragged her to his car, shoved her into the vehicle, hitting her head as he did so. When he noticed that a bystander had witnessed all of this, he shot his firearm into the air. Uh, CW took advantage of this time to escape, but he called her later that night, threatening to shoot her if she told anybody what happened. Um, he violated uh, the protective order that she sought and was granted. After this incident, he later assaulted another woman. And uh, then uh, a year later, he was involved in no fewer than five separate shooting incidents in and around Arlington, Texas, one involving a case of road rage uh, where he shot at another vehicle, one where, um, you know, allegedly he got into a disagreement with a person he allegedly sold narcotics to, shot into their house, and then another incident where his friend's card was declined at a fast food restaurant, and in frustration, he shot several shots into the air. Um, he came to the attention of law enforcement as a person of interest in these several shootings. They executed a search warrant of his residence where they discovered a rifle, ammunition, and a copy of the restraining order. So he was charged with a violation of the federal law that prohibits persons subject to domestic violence protective orders from having firearms. All of this occurred before this really jurisprudential shattering case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Um, and in the aftermath of that decision, he challenged his conviction under the federal law. And the Fifth Circuit determined under this brand new Bruin framework that the federal law was not consistent with the national historical tradition of firearm regulation and therefore found that the law violated the Second Amendment. The government has appealed the decision and the Supreme Court has agreed to take the case and will be hearing it in their upcoming term. Well, thanks so much. You packed a lot in there and uh, in such a clear way. There's been this seismic shift at the Supreme Court. Previously, what the government would have to show was that the 1994 Violence Against Women Act, th that there was a compelling state interest on their part one that could override the, um, if there was a right to have uh, privately owned firearms or, or ammunition. And what we have in Brune, as you said, is shattering of that. And now what we look for, according to the court, is a historical analogy, a law that was like this, a law that said, okay, if there's a domestic violence uh, restraining order, you can't have guns or ammunition, which will be hard since, in fact, in the 18th and 19th century, those laws didn't exist. And in many ways, domestic violence was seen to be an entitlement of the husband up, up to a certain point, which maybe we'll get to later on. 
Um, let's just talk very, very briefly about 1994. This, this law was created. And at the time, Congress said what it was doing. And I'm just going to briefly read what in Congress's words it thought it was doing. Congress finds with respect to this provision that domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women in the United States between the ages of 15 and 44. Firearms are used by the abuser in 7% of domestic violence incidents and produces an adverse effect on interstate commerce. And individuals with a history of domestic abuse should not have easy access to firearms. And with that, they created this law that is now before the court. Now, that's what they thought in 1994, and that 7% is a number from the past. But uh, April and Shannon... um, Can you talk to me a little bit about the establishment in 1994 of this law and what we know today, like what the the statement would be, for example, today in terms of why we would do this? Why should somebody with a restraining order have their guns and ammunition taken away? Yeah, Shannon, please. Sure. Uh, I, I love this this intro to the issue on, on the heels of Kelly's excellent summary of where we are today and the challenge that we're facing. Um, so the 1994 laws, as you articulated, Susan, clearly articulated that Congress recognized the real dangerousness associated with partner violence. And the very reasonable intervention that they took was to say, look, Given what we know about domestic violence and the risks faced by people who experience partner violence, it's a reasonable um, it's a reasonable um, step to take for this body to take to say, let's look at firearms. And when there is a decision um, by the court to issue a domestic violence restraining order at a time when the respondent has an opportunity to participate. If the court finds that there's reasonable um, cause to issue that restraining order, it also seems reasonable that guns should not be readily accessible to that respondent during the time that the restraining order is in place. And so at the time, Congress, um, in its wisdom, saw the risks and took steps that um, were deemed to be reasonable, uh, that were deemed to be uh, an appropriate extension of their authority. And that authority has stood um, for decades now, largely unquestioned, and has um, been a source of protection for countless women and other people who who experience partner violence in the decades since that um, since that decision by Congress to intervene. So prior to the court's decision in West Texas around the Rahimi case, this was an area of domestic violence law. It was an area of, quite honestly, gun violence prevention policy that was really without question. It's not controversial. We see in national polls that the overwhelming number of people in this country are supportive of this type of policy. Um, And these types of policies that exist that are mirrored at the state level have largely been unchallenged. 
So it's a strange position we're in right now because we have more information and maybe I'll, I'll let April talk about the where the state of research is, but we have more information that supports Congress's decision decades ago. We have uh, lived very well with this law now for decades, and it's not an area of controversy in the public dialogue. So from my perspective, it's a very strange place that we're in where something that is very much a part of of life in the United States, something that is very much recognized as an essential protection for people who experience um, partner violence, and something that has um, is without uh, question some, a, a part of life that people accept is now suddenly at risk. Um, and it's troubling, I'll turn to April, because of how much we know about the serious risk that firearms you know, pose in partner violence situations. And before we go to April, I just want to say that, um, so as you know, as you've underlined, Congress had this very consistent idea. It hasn't been controversial. But what's interesting is in reading what uh, the majority, reading the majority opinion in this case, in fact, the two judges found that what Congress was doing was controversial. They saw it as power grabbing and they compared it to recycling and driving an electric vehicle. They said, and this is a quote, like, if we are giving this kind of power to Congress, what would come next? What about recycling? What about electric vehicles? And it is a, it's a you know, it's language that shocked me um, because it trivialized the kind of violence that um, we're going to talk about today. But in fact, what we have seen is not just a seismic shift, as Kelly says, in how the court will decide, but also a difference in the way judges are willing to code it. A third judge said that what these domestic orders are, are ploys for women who are seeking advantage in divorce. Yet another kind of trivializing of why these domestic orders happen. So, um, April, two things. Um, one, can you just remind everybody how you get a domestic order, like the process? Because uh, Shannon mentioned that you know you that there was an ability for a person to respond, et cetera. But I'm not sure everybody gets that. And then let's talk about the you know what what we know since 1994 in terms of these statistics, and it's not seven percent anymore. The process for getting a domestic violence restraining order is not simple. Someone has to you know, get this form from the court and, and fill it out. The f- court form asks a lot of questions about what has happened in this relationship, you know, what has caused them to seek this restraining order to provide evidence that this person, their intimate partner, is a danger to themselves. Often, people are looking for uh, police reports, or judges are looking for police reports to corroborate whatever the victim has said or the petitioner has said. They might. Um, want photos of injuries or hospital reports, all of those things strengthen a domestic violence restraining order petition. In absence of those things, you know, the petitioner just has to put down 
in as much detail as she can what has happened. Now, the judge is going to look at that petition and whatever corroborating evidence that was supplied and decide pretty quickly whether she'll get an ex parte order. An ex parte order is one that is decided without the other party, without the intimate partner. And that'll be in place if it's granted for a short amount of time. Um, you know, two weeks, four weeks. It, it depends on how quickly the court can get a hearing scheduled. Under federal law, that ex parte order doesn't have a firearm restriction, though some states have added a firearm restriction to it. And after that is in place, there will be a hearing scheduled. When the respondent to the order, the person who is accused of abusing, is you know, served with that ex parte order, often they'll also get notice of when the hearing is, or they might get notice of when the hearing is later, but they'll get notice of the hearing and they have the opportunity to attend the hearing. At that hearing, they can state their case, you know, whether they disagree with the order, whether they think the um, claims made by their intimate partner are unfounded, blown up, misinterpreted, but they can state their case, as can the petitioner. And the judge takes all of this into account and decides whether or not to grant that order. We know, at least from the state of Michigan, that it is not the case that orders are always granted. In fact, in Michigan, they're granted just just over half of the time. So these are not orders that are rubber stamped. There is a total misconception that these are just rubber stamped. Everyone gets them. That is not true. It is also uh, not the case that people file for these domestic violence restraining orders in a vengeful way to get back at their partner, to, you know, uh, bolster claims of abuse so that a custody case, you know, is decided in their favor. That's not what we see. But that fear, we have this fear in this country, um, you know, tied to sexism of, you know, vengeful women, you know, this, the specter of a vengeful woman is so strong and so persuasive to people that we would rather believe that a woman is lying about abuse than that a man has abused. And this uh, myth of this vengeful woman is used to silence women, to you know, tell them that they won't be believed when they talk about abuse. And in fact, they're often not believed when they talk about abuse. Now, getting to what we know about intimate partner firearm violence, you know, since 1994, uh, Intimate partner homicide since 1994 had generally been decreasing. And, you know, intimate partner homicides with guns had generally been decreasing. That 
changed around 2014, and we don't yet really know the reasons for this, but intimate partner homicide has been increasing since 2014, and that increase is almost entirely due to an increase in the number of intimate partner homicides committed with guns. Intimate partner homicides committed with knives, other weapons, um, you know, strangulation, none of those things has increased since 2014. It's just the firearm intimate partner homicide. But even when there isn't a homicide, there is a real danger and uh, trauma from firearms being used or threatened in intimate partner violence. Now, the most recent statistics that we have suggest that it's it's about 3.4% of intimate partner violence events that involve a gun. And that, you know, I say it, I know it sounds like a small percentage, and it is a small percentage, but intimate partner violence events are so frequent that that amounts to 32,900 non-fatal gun-involved intimate partner violence events every year or 90 a day. More recent statistics that have looked at um, intimate partner violence that involved threats or uses of guns or where the perpetrator owned a gun and the victim had cause to fear that it might be used, found that 25 million Americans have been affected by this. So we are talking about a lot of people, and we are talking about a very real trauma. In fact, research has suggested that when a gun is used in intimate partner violence, the symptoms of PTSD are greater in that victim than in cases where there's intimate partner violence, but no gun use. So the gun really does flip the script and, you know, PTSD uh, symptomology and also that risk and fear of death because guns are incredibly lethal. Um. Thank you, April. I, I don't actually know how you do some of this work, how you how you study to get us these numbers and repeat them over and over again. So like, thank you for this, for both the research and also for the public-facing work. As you were describing how you get a domestic violence restraining order, what I'm struck by is that in the lower courts in the fifth district, they describe it as if it's always prescribed, as you said, when it's not, and also that it lacks due process for Mr. Rahimi, that there there isn't any ability on his part you know, to speak back. So thank you for clarifying all of that. And Kelly, I don't know what you think of this, but every time I reread the Fifth Circuit decision, I simply have a giant question mark thought bubble over my head with an exclamation point and anger as to how it is that these judges, these are federal judges, can say or even suggest that there isn't due process when all of the steps that April outlined are there. 
Yeah, I I could not agree with you more. I think particularly Judge Ho's concurrence in the Fifth Circuit case in the United States versus Rahimi shows a real lack of understanding of the domestic violence protective order system and the protections that are inherent in that system in a way that's really mind-boggling because the Fifth Circuit looked at this statute in 2001 in a case called the United States versus Emerson, where they speak very eloquently about the American legal tradition of requiring these kinds of findings. Um, you know, Judge Ho mentions the very famous protective order um, that was sought against the late night host, uh, which really has no bearing in this case. It, it was not a protection order between intimate partners. It was an ex parte order. Um, so, you know, for, for clarity for the listeners, the federal law regarding domestic violence protection orders, the firearm prohibition there is only for orders issued after notice and hearing. And so it seems a bit like a smokescreen and shows, I mean, a, a troubling lack of faith in the civil judicial system. Well, and it also might go back to what April was saying about the specter of the vengeful woman. In fact, Judge Ho's entire uh, concurrence is about the vengeful woman who seeks something, takes it away from the man. And there are, are almost no words in the opinion about domestic violence. There is more about recycling than about domestic violence. That's interesting. Um, okay, we, we have there's so much on the table here, and I want to make sure that um, we do a good job on all of it. Uh, both uh, Shannon and April, you, you both study the outcomes of these laws, and you're both very, very focused on what has actually happened, uh, not just with the passage of the law in 1994, but also you're both very, very careful about how, how it is these things are implemented on the ground, because just because it's on a piece of paper doesn't mean that the same thing um, happens in Philadelphia versus in Michigan versus in California. So um, can we talk a little bit about what these restrictions have done and whether or not they are associated with reductions in intimate partner violence? Yeah, um, I'll cover the second part and then let Shannon cover the first part. Um, the Are they associated with uh, reductions in domestic violence? We haven't been able to study non-fatal domestic violence um, in this respect because there simply aren't good databases of non-fatal domestic violence acts. But we can study intimate partner homicide because deaths are recorded. And multiple studies have found that when a state has this law, there's an associated decrease in intimate partner homicide. And to be clear, that decrease is both in firearm intimate partner homicide and total intimate partner homicide. And it's really important that we looked at, that researchers and 
including myself and Shannon, looked at total intimate partner homicide in addition to firearm intimate partner homicide, because we're not just trying to reduce one mechanism of death and you have death still occur. But the reduction in total intimate partner homicide suggests that these laws really do save lives. It doesn't seem to be the case that people are substituting other weapons and affecting the same amount of intimate partner homicides. If they were, we wouldn't see a reduction in total intimate partner homicide. So that argument you might hear, um, I certainly hear, if somebody wants to kill someone else and they can't get a gun, they're just going to find a different way to kill them. That doesn't seem to be the case for you know, some percentage of these cases. We see you know, 10 to 12% reductions in intimate partner homicide with these laws, and those are real lives saved. Shannon? Yeah, and um, thank you for this question. It's such a wonderful opportunity to really highlight, again, how far knowledge has come since that historic decision in 1994 by Congress to prohibit firearm purchase and possession when someone has an order after hearing and results in a domestic violence restraining order. I also want to just note for the listeners, you may hear us refer to domestic violence restraining orders, domestic violence protection orders, protection orders, restraining orders. Um, They're all the same thing. Um, Different states have different names for these orders, but they're civil processes that result, um, that are a response, an important tool when someone is experiencing partner violence. What, um, so I appreciate this question again and the opportunity to really dig into what we know at this point in 2023. And as powerful as the the research is that April just outlined. I mean, I, I just want to sort of highlight that 10% reduction in homicides, right? So if, if ever there was an intervention that we would want to see an effect, reducing death is, is sort of the ultimate um, in terms of the work that we do, in terms of the work that I think we can all agree in society, um, we want our efforts to achieve. And it's hard to do, right? It's hard in research to find that kind of effect. Um, And in fact, those associations are are real and um, powerful. And we all, Kelly, April, and myself, have all sort of gone beyond those important statistical analyses to look at how these laws are being implemented. And what we see when we look at the implementation is that there is tremendous opportunity to realize even greater reductions in these laws. And what I mean by that is when we look around the country and sort of engage with local law enforcement and ask the question, how are you implementing these laws? How are you working with respondents to ensure that um, the letter of the law is upheld and that when these orders are in place, any firearms that are in their possession um, are dispossessed for the duration of the order. What we see over and over and over again is that many jurisdictions, I would say most, are not engaged in this kind of work. 
it's not to say there aren't any jurisdictions that are doing this work because we have found wonderful examples of places where they are following up on these orders and they, when the orders are served, they are doing due diligence and having conversations with respondents and working with them to facilitate that dispossession process. But as best I can tell, and this is, you know, years of, of searching for these um, great examples of implementation, as best I can tell, the places that are doing it well are outliers. So when April talks about what the studies show, um, you know, this reduction in homicide that's associated with domestic violence protection orders, to the best of our knowledge, those reductions are associated with that purchase provision, right? So we have pretty good evidence that, that, that the administrative system that's in place that will prohibit people who are subject to a domestic violence restraining order from purchasing a new gun through a federally licensed firearm dealer, that that is happening, right? We, we don't have any reason to question whether that is happening. And so from my perspective, and the three of us have talked about it, so I think I can fairly say from our perspective, um, what we see in the literature is um, really the result of that purchase prohibition and where there is tremendous opportunity for additional gains in terms of lives saved and public safety benefits realized is in greater attention to an implementation of that pro uh, possession prohibition. And again, it's not the case that this is impossible work to do. We have good examples of this work being done and done very well. We just don't see it done enough. And if it were sort of a matter of routine practice for local law enforcement across the country, that when they receive word that these orders are issued by a court, they follow up with service and also take those steps to facilitate dispossession of firearms, I would argue that we would expect to see even greater numbers coming out of studies like the ones that April has described. So it's both a point of frustration and a point of opportunity. Um, I like to think that, uh, you know, I know Kelly and April well enough, we're, we're optimistic, we're hopeful about the potential to, you know, continue to address uh, partner violence in meaningful ways. And this area of um, following up on dispossession for domestic violence protection orders is a tremendous opportunity for us to do better. Shannon, I'm so glad you brought all that up. Uh, I teach in Philadelphia and some domestic violence prevention advocates there are very critical of the extent to which law enforcement uh, implements the, the dispossession piece. And uh, so you've, uh, I have three questions that you've just swept away because you've answered them all. Um, I, I do want to press you, you know, we're talking about a terrible case that's going before the court, but before we like redirect to that, you know, I, Shannon, I guess I, you mentioned there are places that are doing this well, and both of your research isn't just about laws, it's about practices and policies. So sometimes we think that things are written down, but it, it, it can be in the, the way things are implemented. Can you give us some examples of particular institutions, localities, states, anything uh, who have done done this well and what 
is it that they've done that has made it so, again, we don't have perfect data, but has made it more effective? Sure. I mean, probably one of the jurisdictions that is um, maybe the most public facing in terms of their work in this space is the people in King County, Washington. And they have been very deliberate over the years to set up a unit that includes uh, prosecutors, that includes a prosecutor's office, that includes um, frontline law enforcement, that includes advocates um, for people who are experiencing violence. It's a very comprehensive approach with a highly functioning team that is well-versed in the laws of Washington state and that has been very deliberate in terms of their strategy and approach to um, making a commitment to uphold the laws of Washington state with regard to these prohibitions on firearm purchase and possession. So I love talking to the folks in Washington uh, because they are, they are constantly innovative, you know, innovating. They're very deliberate and intentional with regard to their work. Um, And if you talk to the people involved in that unit, there is so much reward that you hear coming from that work because suddenly these people who have devoted their professional lives to, you know, really being there for communities, for individuals and communities at their worst moments, and for most of their professional careers have been on the end of, you know, kind of picking up the pieces after tragedy occurs, suddenly they get to be in a position where they can be more upstream in their thinking. Suddenly they're able to see you know, violence is at a place where it is clearly serious. It's been elevated to the place where the court is involved. Um, And we see sort of a trajectory of increasing severity. But let's intervene in a very real, meaningful, substantive way at this point. Let's interrupt that trajectory and let's get the people involved on a new trajectory that is less violent, that won't result in those all too common ends where people are very seriously injured or killed. And so, you know, I'll, I'll hold up King County and I'll say that, you know, we've talked to a number of, of law enforcement agencies about this. And from my perspective, it isn't about intentional Um, disregard for the law. It's more about um, how a question of priorities and, you know, the question of, um, is this going to be a priority at a time when um, resources for law enforcement are um, challenged? And it's always the case that um, in any agency or bureaucracy, leaders are going to make decisions about how to use their resources. And in places like King County, they've made a decision to dedicate resources and um, encourage and support personnel who are focused and trained and see the real benefits associated with implementing and enforcing the domestic violence prohibition on firearm possession for respondents to domestic violence restraining orders. 
Thanks, Shannon. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. We've talked a lot on this podcast, not in this one, but in ones that we've done previously on the Second Amendment about narratives, and that what we see is this new, quite new narrative of freedom associated with guns, not violence, not lack of safety, not being something that kills disproportionately women in the private sphere, but as something that actually makes us safer. And so that narrative, that an extremely powerful narrative of guns equal freedom, guns equal individuality, guns equal autonomy, again, something that only began in 2008 in the court, and really we don't have evidence of it in the 18th and 19th century, as, as somebody who has studied those documents, I think I feel confident saying that. And so what part of what I hear you saying is that you need leaders who understand uh, firearms to be uh, not necessarily something that can't provide other um, Um, searching for the word, hobbies for people to be shooting, to be hunting, but that doesn't mean that they can't be thought about very critically in the space of the home and in the effect that they have on individuals, particularly pregnant women, children. There, there are people who are disproportionately affected by this, yet the narrative is not nationally about guns equal danger, guns equal violence. There's a sort of a tension between the, the two. Um, April, I wanted to come back to you um, uh, in a kind of a magic wand type question. Like you, if, if you could get people to make these changes, like Shannon is talking about some particular places that she admires, and I'm happy to hear yours as well, but uh, are there things you just wish you could recommend to people and they would just say yes to, like things that as a, as a researcher who's been looking at this for so long, it frustrates you that they're not happening. Oh, absolutely. Um, b before I, I do that, when you talk about disproportionate effect, I, I just want to point out that Black women bear the burden here. Their intimate partner homicide rates are far greater than that of white women. And when we're talking about pregnancy-related intimate partner homicide, it, it's even greater. Um, you know, so a, a lot of these homicides are the homicides of Black women, and, and we need to pay attention to the different considerations that, you know, Black women may have in these policies and interventions versus what we might think of as more mainstream um, policies that are generally designed for white people. Um, but when we talk about my magic wand, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I would really, really like to see is that more of these state statutes and especially the federal statute cover dating partners. And let me just explain that under you know the federal statute and in many states, you only get that firearm restriction if you're a current or former spouse of the person you're filing against, if you have a child with the person you're filing against, or if you lived with the person you're filing against. 
So if you dated someone for four years, but you never moved in together and you never had a child, you're not going to get the firearm restriction under federal law and in the states that haven't expanded it to dating partners. Today, dating partners make up the bulk of intimate partner homicide perpetrators. And when you think about societal changes, this makes sense. My mother got married when she was 20, you know, and she says she was considered an old maid. And, you know, I got married at at 27. I was, you know, right around the average for women. And I think the average for women now, as I'm about to celebrate my 20th anniversary, is, you know, somewhere around, um, you know, 30. So we are spending so much more time dating than we ever used to. And dating relationships are often just like, you know, marital relationships in that intimate partner violence happens. It can be severe um, and it can be and is sometimes lethal. So by not covering dating partners, we're really missing a huge opportunity to save more lives. So that would be, you know, my magic wand move. And if I had one other, I would, you know, bow to Shannon's, uh, you know, which is implementation. If the court says that somebody is too dangerous to have a gun, we need to make sure they don't have a gun. It's that simple. These guns are now illegal, the ones they have after they've been prohibited. And we have to do something about illegal guns. Shannon, first of all, before we move on to something else, is there anything else you want to add besides the implementation or anything specific to implementation? I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll just add, this isn't rocket science. I mean, I hope that's one thing that your listeners take away. Um, you know, the history of, of sexism, talking about black women, racism, that's difficult, right? Removing guns from people who are court ordered not to have them is not difficult. Um, so when we think about, you know, how to act, there are some, there are a range of ways in which we can improve society. We need to be focused on sort of the short-term wins, and we need to always be working toward more long-term wins. Um, So things like sexism and racism should always be a part of our agenda. And some of those easy things also, from my perspective, need to be mixed in there. And um, upholding court orders is an easy one. We have lots of examples of how it's done, how it's done well. And um, this is this is without in the realm of possibility now. Kelly, I want to turn to you um, and this brief that all three of you have participated in writing. You know, for listeners who aren't Supreme Court nerds, the the, the two sides get to submit briefs, but also anybody who thinks that they have something important to say can 
and it's a long process and it's a hard process, can submit a friend of the court brief, an amicus brief that says, we, as uh, in this case, um, Catholic bishops are submitting, um, people who, uh, sheriffs, all sorts of people who are involved are submitting. And you have helped write this brief, um, which is directed, is coming from um, about 111, I think you said, public health researchers. Can you tell us what you're arguing in your brief, what you are telling the court so that they might take all of the things that we've just been talking about and somehow use this in in their ruling? Yes, I would be happy to. And I want to thank April and Shannon for being such integral parts of the development of the brief. Um, I've known them both for, for a long time. And so I've, I've learned so much from both of them. And it's really sort of... Um, the brief was was built on the knowledge that I've gained from working with them. The premise of the brief is several fold. Um, as I mentioned, you know, Bruin set out this new framework for evaluating Second Amendment cases, which required at the first instance, the party challenging the law to show that the conduct at issue is covered by the plain text of the Second Amendment. And a lot of courts have been viewing this really, really broadly. For example, looking at the federal prohibition on domestic violence protection orders as mere possession, easily falling within the plain text, um, you know, explicitly mentioned by Heller and McDonald before it. And then secondarily, the government is required to show that the law at issue is relevantly similar to historical firearms laws, either at and around the founding in 1791, or at and around the time of Reconstruction and the ratification of the 14th Amendment in the 1860s. Um, a decision on that time frame, TBD, I think. Um, so one of the things that we focused on in the brief is really highlighting the robust evidence that there is a national historical tradition of regulating firearms by people perceived to be dangerous. And that many of those historical provisions were based not on criminal convictions, um, but on being part of a category of individuals or based on a individualized assessment of dangerousness. For example, these historical surety laws, which required people you know, reasonably suspected of, of being dangerous in public with firearms to post a monetary bond against future bad behavior. And additionally, to reinsert and, and reassert the importance of the type of evidence-based research that Shannon and April have so eloquently discussed. For some courts, I think there is an erroneous assumption that the new framework laid out in Bruin means they can no longer consider this kind of public health data. And I think that's absolutely untrue and something we really try to weave into the brief, which is 
This helps us understand today based on objective criteria, not stereotypes, not discriminatory categories, who is dangerous with firearms. And we also pointed out that the Fifth Circuit made some bad assumptions, but also applied the framework incredibly narrowly in a way that the Bruin majority does not seem to require. Bruin states that in analogizing to historical laws, that they should look for a comparable burden and a comparable purpose in those historical laws, not identical on either front. And so as the Fifth Circuit says, all of these historical dangerousness laws, they're not relevantly similar because they're about the preservation of political and social order, not the protection of an identifiable person. And we assert that that's wrong for a couple of reasons. One, there's some really wonderful historical literature from Laura Edwards talking about the way that um, you know, judicial intervention was viewed at common law. And there were circumstances where local jurists would issue peace bonds against husbands whose abuse was so egregious um, that it, it was viewed as a threat to social order. Um, you know, the, the involvement of the judiciary at the time was thought to be, I mean, before the revolution, it's, it's a crime against the king. It's a crime against the king's peace. Um, and additionally, this idea that the harm brought upon primarily women from domestic abusers doesn't impact social order seems untenable especially in light of the wide scope of individuals who are impacted by domestic violence, not just directly by experiencing violence from an abuser themselves, but the enormous impact on communities where a community member is hurting or they have been killed. Um, I, I just think it's, it's sort of, it's this remnant of the sexism of bygone years that we need to shake off if if women are ever going to be allowed to be full participants in political and social life. Um, thank you. That's an incredible summary. And Laura Edwards is our next interview on the podcast. So she'll be here next week to talk about her book, which was missed because new books in political science, new books in history, we can't catch every author, every book. And it's only recently that we've even tried. So she'll be on the podcast explaining this. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to have your um, brief first so that we can then put in that in that perspective. So I think from my, my you know, own um, study of the Constitution and the history around it, that, that this is all correct, that there is no doubt that there have been since the 17th, maybe since the 12th century, this kind of focus in the common law on the public peace, on maintaining the public good. I, I, no matter when we talk about this. And I think what you're doing, Kelly, is exactly right in terms of strategy. The only thing you can do is play on the baseball field that you've been given. And the baseball field you've been given is this Supreme Court 
that has put down an artificial surface called originalism and not real grass. And I, and I, so I think what you're doing in the brief is exactly what you should be doing, but I can't help inserting into our conversation that any assumption that we should be looking at the original intent of 1791 or 1868 is bankrupt. I mean, it's academically bankrupt because it is simply impossible due to the in complete record, for example, to be able to even know what it is the people thought at a particular time. And any no historian of, of repute will tell you that they can tell you all of these things. That's first. And second, women did not have equal legal status in either 1791 or 1868. In fact, especially within the household, and I was so thrilled for you to make that distinction, April, between the dating versus the married or having children, because coverture meant that married women in particular didn't have certain rights, and in fact, their husbands could hit them, not kill them, but could hit them and could rape them because there was no such thing as marital rape in 1791 or 1868. It takes well into the 20th century for all 50 states to come around to the idea that men do not have 24-7 sexual access to their wives as a common law right. And every time we quote Blackstone, we probably need to go back to some of the horrific things that he said about the entitlement of a husband to access his wife. So I, I just want for the listeners to understand that everybody now has to argue on originalist basis because six members of the Supreme Court think this. Um, but I don't, I, 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 at some point we will have to push back to say that there is no way to think about women or many other groups of people, um, Black Americans, uh, queer Americans, disabled Americans, uh, Americans with mental illness, none of those things work for 1791 or, or 1868. Okay, end of my um, editorial here. Um, Drew Stevens and Jake Charles, who've also written a brief in this case, were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And Kelly, they mentioned something that you were alluding to which is they, they said it was a fragile majority in Brune because there wasn't agreement on how you would measure what is or isn't original intent, what is or isn't the history and tradition. So I love that your brief is exploiting that. I love that what your brief is trying to do is see, I think, who could be peeled off in terms of accepting this more general historical claim, which can be proven that we passed laws in cities, states, and um, we didn't, when we had beyond the colonies for, for this kind of, of um, protection of the public safety. Uh, we wouldn't have called it public health in 1868, but there's some evidence that sometimes it was about public health and public good and public health were mixed. Um, Okay, I, I want to close by uh, two things. First of all, I, I, I want to ask you about uh, April and Shannon, whether when you read the facts, when you hear Kelly restate them in this case, are these facts in which you say, wow, that's a really highly unusual case? Or are these facts in which you say, yep, right, that's just what happens all the time or somewhere, somewhere in between? Um, April, you responded facially. So I'm going to 
pick your first. Yeah, you know, thankfully, I don't think this is the most frequent type of case. You know, not everybody who's under a restraining order shoots at cars and fast food workers and homes and, you know, but this is not surprising. I have heard, you know, many stories, uh, you know, from people who have been victimized, from advocates who are telling me about it, of similar events. It it isn't surprising. Um, What is surprising to me is that, you know, this is the case that ended up in front of the Supreme Court, um, you know, just because this person, Mr. Rahimi, so clearly should not have a gun. And, you know, one of the um, judges who concurred, or it might have been uh, the majority opinion in, in Rahimi, who said, you know, that essentially the same thing. No, Mr. Rahimi probably shouldn't have a gun, but it's constitutional to unconstitutional to stop him from having a gun. Um, I got caught up in April's answer and the loud music outside. Would you mind repeating it? Um, You know, when you read these facts, is it, is it, is this the usual case? Does this remind you of what you come across? Um, and you know, and I want to note, April, that that uh, two other people that I had on the podcast to talk about this, uh, Joseph Bloker and uh, Andrew Willinger from the Duke Firearms Law Center, they both said that that the the pro Second Amendment expansive reading is very upset because these facts are the worst possible case there there may okay i'm so sorry not the worst possible case that really does uh under uh state the kind of violence uh that can happen and also the fact that many of these li- end in homicide and thankfully this one did not but um um they said the people aren't happy because these these are ugly facts. This isn't a close case. It is kind of what April said. This is a case in which somebody shouldn't have a gun. Uh, anyway, Shannon, all I was asking is is first of all, you know, what do you think of the facts? And and then we're going to segue to like I we talked about a lot of things, but I really want to make sure that all that all three of you have a chance to introduce things that we have not said that you really think need to be said. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Susan. So I would say with regard to the Rahimi case in particular, having been in the field of partner violence for decades now, um, you know, I'm sorry to say that I've seen a lot. Um, so I would, I would say that there is certainly a spectrum of the severity of violence that we see in partner violence. Uh, and Mr. Rahimi's actions um, are on that spectrum. Um, and I would probably place his actions as described in the, in the court's opinion as maybe somewhere to the more extreme of center, but from, for me, by no means the most extreme cases that I've heard of or read about. Um, domestic violence is a crime. It's a serious crime. 
and it's a pervasive crime in our society. Um, I think one of the questions that this decision before the court poses for our country is, are we going to allow this crime to occur in the 21st century when we know that violence like partner violence occurs on a trajectory? And when we have an opportunity to intervene, are we going to turn the other way and allow it to continue? Or are we going to embrace the evidence, embrace our point in history with the knowledge that we have and say, enough is enough. You know, you don't have to be at one end of the spectrum in order to merit intervention. I do think this is a watershed moment for our country, and I want the court to do the right thing. Um, what I'd like to see come out of this case is a strong majority that affirms the very real and important role that the constitutional protections for people who are experiencing violence um, should have when it comes to the dispossession of guns for people who are, after a court hearing, found to be abusive and um, merit a restraining order. That should also come with a temporary prohibition on the purchase and possession of guns. And I really want to sort of say in my loudest possible voice that this is something that the Supreme Court, that all courts in this country, that people in this country should confidently be getting behind. Um, because there's really no reason at this point in our history to be backing down from a position of um, prohibiting guns from people who are violent towards the people who they love or claim to love. Thank you. Um, April, I, I know we've talked about so many things, but is there something that is sort of hanging out there that you really want to make sure gets said in this conversation? I would just highlight that these laws have evidence behind them and that evidence suggests that they save lives. And what could be better than saving lives? We want them to work. We don't want people to be killed because the Supreme Court decided they couldn't have those protections. And that is what will happen. More people will be killed by their intimate partners when those intimate partners aren't prevented from having a gun. But we can save lives. We know how. We just have to do it. And Kelly, final thought? Ooh, final thought. It's a lot of pressure. Um, I think maybe a couple of final thoughts. Um, one, there are several briefs that have discussed this far more eloquently than I am about to, but I wanted to note that criminal convictions are in no way an adequate alternative to civil protective order firearm prohibitions. They serve different roles, and there are 
completely legitimate reasons why somebody experiencing abuse may not want their partner to be prosecuted and convicted. Um, criminal, or I'm sorry, civil protective orders play a unique role that is necessary in the entire framework of firearm laws. Um, and then I think finally, I would say that I, I simply cannot accept that there is a legitimate and acceptable argument that the Second Amendment, um, you know, meant to withstand the test of time does not have room for these kinds of important life-saving violence prevention laws. I, I think, you know, to the extent that it's possible for the Supreme Court to invalidate the federal law, I think that presents its own host of, of legitimacy problems. Um, Shannon, you had <clears throat> one worry, and I want to make sure we end with that because everybody here has been so crystal clear and very, very precise, and I really appreciate that. So we'll, we'll, we'll end with one thing that you'd like to clarify. Uh, so I just, uh, thank you, Susan. Um, so I just wanted to emphasize, which Kelly actually did quite well, um, that the civil system, the civil orders of protections that have been the focus of our discussion are a very important uh, tool in the toolbox for people who are experiencing uh, domestic violence. And um, that civil route uh, is crucial and it is the central aspect of um, legal protections that we're talking about with this podcast. So um, I appreciate that focus and uh, very much value the role of this civil court process in uh, the protections to people who are experiencing violence from their partners. And this is a great way to end because one of the worst things about the Fifth Circuit Court opinion is it says, why didn't she just accuse him of a crime? And if she did, then there would have been due process. And that ignores where we started in the podcast was, which is with this, the specter of the vengeful woman and that we really don't believe what women say. And that means that women tend not, in fact, to make certain kinds of accusations or put themselves in places in which either, as was already said, you do not want your husband, your lover, your date prosecuted, but you want protection for yourself. And also that you fear humiliation, publicity, and not being believed. So, Anyway, I want to thank all three of you for the work that you've independently done, the work that you've done together on this brief, and thank you so much for joining New Books on Political Science today. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun.